All right, so past couple weeks, we have covered the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. Very first verse begins with, this is the book of the genealogy, the Genesis, the beginnings of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're going to address both of those titles again this morning. Last week, really pressing into the birth narrative in regards to who Jesus is, that he was not just a historical figure and just a good man and a good teacher, but he is the very God of gods who created the heavens and the earth that became a man. We say he is fully and truly God. He is fully and truly man also. And this title for his name, Jesus, the reason he was named Jesus is that he will save his people from their sins. These ideas, as we sit in the Gospel of Matthew, all of this is to unveil. We have Matthew in this first-person narrative. He saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. He watched the crucifixion. He knew that Jesus was dead. He saw him resurrected. He watched him ascend to heaven. He was there on the day of Pentecost as the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, going forth into all the world with the Gospel, the good news in his lips. And other lips, and here is the preservation of his testimony to us about who Jesus is. All right, with that as background, we're jumping into chapter 2. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came, from, uh, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. All right, we'll see if we get beyond that this morning. If we do, then we're really good. Here's what's going on. We'll deal with Bethlehem in a minute and why that is important. But the time stamp that we have is this is, is in the days of Herod the Great, who is defined as the king of the Jews. When you sit in the long arc of the narrative of the Bible... Outside of God creating the heavens and the earth, created Adam and Eve, male and female in his image there in the first couple of chapters. Then you have to sit in the testimony. What does it mean to be disobedient to God? What is sin? What is death? All of that is found in Genesis chapter 3 and that fall of humanity. But as you progress in the narrative of Genesis, after the flood, you get into this. It's known as the table of nations in Genesis 10. So here you have this, the sea of humanity that is defined for us in Genesis chapter 10. And out of that, into 11, you have the Tower, Tower of Babel. At the end of 11, we're introduced to this man, Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. Genesis 12, you have God's covenant to this man. But the whole, the whole attachment there in regards to who Jesus is as the son of Abraham, it's identifying him with this singular man where God reached into the sea of humanity and he called a singular individual to himself to make himself known to that individual so that that individual could make the God of gods known to his family and to his culture around him. So there's all these promises that are associated with Abraham, but the main one is Abraham in your seed. And ultimately it's pointing to Jesus. In your seed, all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, will be blessed. Those who curse you are going to be cursed. Those who bless you are going to be blessed is the promise that God gives to Abraham. So as you sit in the rest of that narrative of the Old Testament, it's following Abraham's descendants. You sit in, we're going to get into Abraham's descendants. There's, there's 70 of them at the end of Genesis that are found in the nation of Egypt because of a harsh circumstance, because of a famine. So there, for a few generations, a handful of generations, they become the slaves of the nation of Egypt and that whole story. And then God calls another man, Moses, to be that deliverer, to help deliver the people out from underneath the authority of Pharaoh, this pagan king, as God is making himself known to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, and delivers his people, this idea of deliverance. He saves his people out of this wicked government, out of their bondage, out of their slavery, and brings them into 
years of wandering in the wilderness as God is making himself known, not just to the man Abraham, but to the man's descendants that are now numbered in the millions. This becomes important because as we sit and identifying who Jesus is, we're going to sit in these, these, uh, these kingship ideas and these foreign government ideas also, where the imagery that we have in Pharaoh and Moses plays out for us today in the imagery of Herod and Jesus. And you can see this in other images in the Old Testament for sure. As you follow, the, again, the long arc of the history of Israel, we've just sat in First uh, and Second Samuel where we have the nation crying out for a king. They don't want to be ruled by just God, but they want to be ruled by a man. And in that narrative, we've already sat in, again, God specifically called and chose David. In that choosing of David, God gave to David a very specific promise in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that one of his descendants would sit on his throne for all eternity. So as we sit in defining Jesus as the king this morning, the king of kings and the king of the Jews, it's attaching him to he is a direct descendant of Abraham, he is a direct descendant of David, he is all of those definitions and fulfilling all of these promises in the Old Testament. We haven't sat in recently. We're, uh, we're in Daniel uh, on Wednesday night, so we sat in some of this definition on Wednesday night, where you have the Jews in their... There is a religious law, a ceremonial law. I will be my, your God. You will be my people. And he who lives... You will live through obedience is what Leviticus tells us. In obedience to God's law, therein you will find life. And here we sit in the misery of humanity that not a singular person can live out the law of God. Where we sit in the prophecy of Habakkuk, which is quoted three times in the New Testament. The just, the righteous, you shall live by faith. Not in, you shall live by your performance according to the law, but you shall live by your faith in the almighty God. The Jews fail to live out that faith. They fail to live out the laws. And God uses wicked nations to oppress his people, to discipline his people. He uses the Assyrians uh, in Isaiah's time to conquer the northern tribes of Israel to begin with. And then he uses the nation of Babylon. So again, on Wednesday nights, we are in uh, Daniel's prophecy. That is during the time of the Babylonians, God using them to come and conquer the people first. And because of the Jews' rebellion against that conquering, against that oppressive leadership, the Babylonians end up destroying Jerusalem. They end up destroying the temple. The people are carried off into slavery. And those who remain in the land are extremely impoverished. And oppressed is this long narrative. As you follow out the history after the Babylonian Empire, you know, it lasts in its authority for roughly a hundred years until Cyrus the Persian comes in and conquers Babylon, and that's also in the book of Daniel. And in that time, it's during Cyrus's reign that the Jews are sent back to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and to reestablish worship in, in Israel. That's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's all this history. Then you sit and after, and again, in that history, it's very clear that there is a, there's still a rebellion in the hearts of the people. There are foreign oppressors over the nation of Israel from that time going forward. So as you follow out that history, the Medes and the Persian, the Persian Empire, is then ended up conquered by Alexander the Great. So roughly in the 300s BC, you have this Macedonian king who sweeps to the east. He sweeps through Persia, he sweeps into, into India, he sweeps down through Israel and into Egypt. This man, by the time he is in his early 30s, has not lost a battle and has conquered more territory than any other general known. That's why he's called Alexander the Great, because of how, many, how much territory he conquered, and that's what history lifts him up for. When he dies in his early 30s, that Greek kingdom is broken into his, uh, that authority is handed to his four different generals. One of the major generals, it's uh, Seleucus is his name, it becomes the Seleucid dynasty. Out of that dynasty is where you sit with Antiochus Epiphanes, 
and his oppression of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. He is an antichrist figure that was predicted in the prophecy of Daniel. If you sit in uh, uh, the book, the first and second Maccabees is, a, is an apocrypha book of history that will educate you in the regard to the history that's going on during Antiochus Epiphanes' time. During his time, during his reign, is when the Jews raise up in rebellion against this Seleucid dynasty. And they have a quasi-freedom and a quasi-liberty um, from foreign oppressors. Not totally, but quasi. So that leads into what's known as the Hasmonean dynasty and leadership there in the nation of Israel. As you sit in that dynasty, there's different kind of civil wars, there's different kind of external pressures. Uh, during that time in history is when the Roman Republic is swelling in its power around the Mediterranean. And it's during, it's during a civil war of the Jews in six, the 60s BC when a general of Rome called Pompey is the one who inserts Rome into that civil war and from there on, Israel becomes under the authority of the Romans. All of that is history and important to understand because it feeds into the culture of the time. You have this guy that's identified as Herod the Great. Herod is appointed by the Roman emperor to be this client king over the nation of Israel. He has an Idumean history, which is of, uh, of the Moabites there to the east of Israel and all that history with Esau, the Edomites, sorry. Um, he is Jewish by religion, but this guy, he's known as Herod the Great because he's great because he was a builder. So he left behind many great building uh, projects such as refurbishing the second temple made it more glorious than the temple during Solomon's time anyways he, he was a major major builder and he had from his very beginning the reason why the Romans made him uh, gave him this title king of the Jews and all of, of this authority during that time is because he was able to violently put down any opposition to the Romans and to help keep peace in the nation of Israel. But all of this, all the time, there's all these undercurrents, there's all this challenge to power that's going on continually. By the time we hit this point in Herod's life, Herod is a paranoid king. History tells us that he started out well and he did a lot of good things. As he ages in his kingship, he ages in his paranoia and he ages in trying to hold on to the authority that has been granted to him by the Roman Empire. The Romans have called him the king of the Jews. The Jews are sitting there in the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament crying for a conquering king to come to deliver them from Roman oppression. We don't know how much, but my imagination tells me that Herod attempted to own a lot of the messianic imagery in regards to his ruling. He is uh, Augustus, the, the Roman emperor Augustus, said in history that it is safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his kids. And in the, in the Greek, it, it comes out heavier because pig is H-U-S, and huios is, uh, means sons in the Greek. So it's a, it's a play on words. But the issue is, is Herod killed one of his wives. He killed multiple of his sons because he's trying to put down rebellion to his authority. So when we sit in this identification that this is the time in which Jesus was brought into this world where he was born in Bethlehem, but the man who is in charge of the government, that man who is in charge of the government is wicked, he is paranoid, he is a client king of a foreign oppressor, all of that is the weight that is being felt in individual households. I send it this long-winded narrative of history because history only gives us slivers of the greats. Like as we talk about Alexander the Great, we usually focus on like what he did militarily. We don't talk about the specifics of that military. We don't talk about the people who were killed. We don't talk about the people who were conquered. We don't talk about what Greek culture was really like. Yeah, the language is great, and there's a lot of good aspects of philosophy and culture, a lot of just downright evil and darkness in all of these nations. 
So even in the nation of Israel at this time where they have been disciplined and broken of their idolatry historically, as you sit in the culture of the people, they're ruled by godless men and godless women to a heavy degree. So you thrust this message and this narrative into our own culture in America. Do you feel that we are a godless nation in different ways? Some of us, we can sit and hear, here's all the history. Here's how the gospel has impacted us culturally, from morals to laws to ethics to just prosperity. There's so much impact that Jesus has had on us culturally and continues to do today. At the same time, you can sit in all the history of America and you can see all those rails of evil and darkness that were going on at the exact same time. And depending on your personal experience and context in that narrative, it has a great deal of how you, the filter in which you see the culture in which you live in today, yes? I say all that to say that that's the different kinds of filters that are going on in the individual lives during this period. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. And behold, we have these wise men from the east come from Jerusalem. These guys are, again, linking it back to Daniel. When the Babylonians came and conquered, they took some of the Jewish young men into Babylon and began to uh, indoctrinate them into the ways of the Babylonians. Daniel is just an awesome testimony because he purposes in his heart that he's not going to be defiled by an oppressive culture, an oppressive religion, but that he is going to remain faithful to his God. So as he's learning the language, as he's learning the government and the economics and the philosophy of the Babylonians, he's retaining his faith and relationship with God. It ends up in chapter 2 that we just covered on this Wednesday night. Daniel, through interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is exalted to be a leader of a group that's identified as these wise men. So there's a list of categories of these astrologers and these Chaldeans, these wise men during, ba uh, during Daniel's time in Babylon. These wise men that are showing up for the east, they would have been the descendants of this priestly class is what it's identified as. So there's astrology involved, there's divination involved, there's all kinds of Babylonian religious mythology that's involved with this background. But why did these guys, how did they know anything about the Messiah? How did they know anything about whatever this star is? And to come to make this long trek, whether they're from Babylon, whether they were in modern day Iran, where they traveled from, we don't know. We just know that they're from the east and that they're part of this class of people. They've traveled all the way to Jerusalem because they know that the king of the Jews has been born. Why does a foreign Gentile care about who the king of the Jews is? To me, the, the only solution is the influence of Daniel and God in Daniel. And you sit in the prophecies that God gave to Daniel in regards to the future kingdoms that were going to come that we just listed out in history. And in regards to there is coming a king and there is coming a kingdom that is going to destroy, wipe away all the kingdoms of the earth. And that king and that kingdom are going to endure forever. That's why these men have showed up. And when they show up, again, this is a, you have to get rid of any of the Christmas mythology. There's not just three guys. There's three guys, and they're called kings because of different, just uh, misinterpreting, misapplying Old Testament prophecies. Um, you can go look at these. There's some three skulls in a Catholic church in Germany if you want to go see who they are. Super weird tradition gets associated with them that's not real. But when you sit in what's real, here you have this group of people that Daniel became a leader of, that he clearly taught them in regards to who the true and living God is and all of his influence during his, you know, 70 years or plus in Babylon. You see uh, um, what those prophecies that God gave to Daniel and how he would have instructed and written those things down to this uh, to this group of people. Again, they've held on to this information for an extended period of time. We'll get into the star in a minute because I don't have a clue what it is, but whatever they saw, whether it was supernatural, whether it was this, uh, astronomy and just the lining up of the stars, whatever this star is, there was an indicator that they, the king 
has been born, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that, that's what sent them on their course to come with gifts and to bow down in worship. So when they show up in Jerusalem, here you have a man, Herod, who is called the King of the Jews. And you have these wise men who are coming, not just a few guys, but they are coming in a whole train of people that the culture of Jerusalem sees and they know that something's going on and the question that comes out of their mouth to the king of the Jews is, where is the king of the Jews? So remember, the king of the Jews, Herod's super paranoid as these foreigners just come in and ask where the king of the Jews is who has just been born. Got all that is set up? They've come to worship him. All right, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. This is also very fascinating and, and sad at the same time. Told you when we began Matthew that Matthew's got some issues with the religious leadership of the nation of Israel. And you can sit, uh, you go sit in the testimony during Ezra's time and Nehemiah's time. The religious leadership is often going wayward. They're pressing into the politics of the day, the power of the day, the money of the day, the personal benefits they're receiving. And you watch them deviate from faith in God to the things of this world. Ezra and Nehemiah, there's much correction of that that goes on during their time. But over the history that I listed out earlier has developed this system of the religious authority in Jerusalem. So when it identifies the chief priests and the scribes, the chief priests are going to be, it's, a, it's part of the Jewish aristocracy of the time. Most of this group of individuals is associated with the sect of the Sadducees. When it comes to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes, there's these different religious groups and um, you know, different competing theologies and definitions and how they interpreted the word of God and how they pressed into the culture of their day. This group, again, they, are seen, they look to themselves and the people look to them also as the leaders. They are the ones who are to know what the word of God says. They're the ones that are participating in the religious worship that God commanded, standing as mediators between God and man. And as we watch Matthew unveil Jesus and who Jesus is, often he is coming against the religious leadership of the time. And here's the first example of it. Here you have, these are, these are the chief priests. These are not just the singular chief priest, but there's a, there's a class, there's a group of the leaders that are in the community, and they are there in submission to uh, Herod and to Rome. At the same time, they're seeking a lot of freedom in that and all the political intrigue that's going on. The scribes, these are the individuals that are known as the recorders, the lawyers of the day, where they, every single one of these individuals would be defined as a biblical expert. And we can sit in this title today. There are many biblical experts who write many biblical commentaries, articles that have absolutely zero faith in the Almighty God. 
all they are is scholars. And unfortunately, for most of these men, most of this group of individuals, until Jesus confronts many of their souls and they repent, they're just sitting there in their religion, but extremely godless. And that this group that's called together before Herod, you can tell that they're godless. Do you know why? You have Gentiles who are not the children of Abraham, who have a prophecy, and they know that the king, the promised Messiah of the Jews, has been born. And when this group comes into the community, and they are sharing that testimony, and they are looking for this child who has been born the king of the Jews, and Herod pulls all the religious leaders together and says, where's he born? They all know exactly the prophecy to go to in Micah chapter 5 and say the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Again, uh, Matthew pointing to the fulfillment of Scripture. We don't have time this morning. I'd encourage you to go read through Micah chapter 5. Awesome context. But here, the religious leaders, they're hearing the testimony. They know where the Messiah is to be born. And does Herod or any of the chief priests or any of the scribes go pursue the child not a single one of them do this is just a religious exercise for them this is just a power play for them they know they have knowledge they have wisdom they have understanding but they have zero faith they're not looking to the almighty god to be the god of gods of their own souls and their own lives and over the culture they're looking for their own selves and their own power plays and their own desires and their own wants and we'll watch this idea play through. Herod is troubled. All of Jerusalem is troubled. The chief priests and the scribes are troubled. There's an investigation. Where would this child, where is he supposed to be born? They know. And Herod, again, that group is dismissed. And then Herod calls a little private meeting with these wise men. And wants to know. Wants to know the time. He's going to determine when they first saw the star. So he's trying to gauge how long ago was this child born. He's trying to, I'm going to use you to go search this child out because he has devious means in his own soul. He's saying that he's going to come worship also, but absolutely not. And then we have this, the star that they had seen in the east goes before them and stands over where the young child was. They rejoice, exceedingly great joy. We'll get back to that in a minute. But as we talk about this star, if you, um, there's, a, there's a great documentary. It's called The Star of Bethlehem. I'm, it's probably put out 15 years ago or so. It's a guy walking through you know, the software of just astronomy and walking through the different constellations and where these constellations were at the time of Christ. And some of it's really cool. Like, is that what God was using? Is that the star that he used in this alignment between Jupiter and Saturn? And it's an extra bright star, and that's what sent these wise guys going? I don't know. I hold that really loosely. It's really interesting to kind of sit in and go, hmm, maybe, could be. But I when I look at the behavior of this star, when you're sitting in Jerusalem, uh, Bethlehem's like six miles to the south. So when you look up at the stars, which I was outside this morning getting the dogs, and it was a bright, clear morning. You could see all these stars, just absolutely majestic. But if I moved from here and I went up six miles to Sawney Mountain or something, my vantage point of the stars, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to deviate. So whatever this star is, it's something that was moving and able to highlight for this group that they're, as they're heading to Bethlehem and this, the star is moving and it's guiding them and it's standing over Bethlehem, there's something supernatural about it. I don't know what it is. I really don't have a clue. I press into all the commentaries and nobody has a good enough answer for me, so I hold all of these things open-handed. What I do hold with a fist, though, I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 24. All the way back in the books of Moses, Numbers 24, we have this very naughty prophet named Balaam. Balaam has been hired by the Moabites to come and curse the children of Israel. 
But Balaam, as he's been hired to do this and wants to go do this for money, as he goes to curse the children of Israel, he is not able to do so. He is only able to speak the words that God gives to him. You speak in the prophetic word that God gave to Balaam, Balaam, this naughty prophet who ends up losing his life for his naughtiness. Uh, One of these things we get this star idea. Um, Numbers 20, uh, let's back up to Numbers 23. Uh, This is in the second prophecy in verse 21. He says, "He he being God is not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. And again, that's, God sees all that, but again, there's a forgiveness, there's a covering, that's what's awesome. The Lord, his God, is with him. Sat in last week, Jesus being called Emmanuel, God with us. And the shout of a capital king is among them. Again, all the way back in the time of, of Moses, here you have, again, the prophecy in regards to the coming king. The Lord is God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. Jump down to chapter 24, verse 7. It says, His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He, shall have, he, he has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him. Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. Jump down to verse 17. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So he's talking about the future, and here's the star. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons with tumult. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also his enemy shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly, out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. So here in, it's not just with Balaam, but you can sit in a lot of the imagery that we have in regards to who God is is this whole idea of light. God in Genesis 1, out of, the, out of the heavens and the earth that he created and all is darkness, God says, let there be light and there is light. At the very end of Revelation, Revelation 22, some of the last words of Jesus, he says, I am the bright and morning star. In Isaiah chapter 60, in multiple, cha- multiple sections in Isaiah, you have this whole idea that there is a land of darkness. In your own soul can be very dark. The culture can be very dark. Your community can be very dark. And all of this imagery, when God steps in, what does he step in with? He comes in with his light. Now, when it comes to this star, the star of Bethlehem, the star that led, what is this that these wise men saw while they were in the east? Was it a comet? Was it a meteor? Was it an alignment of planets? Was it something supernatural? I don't know, but I do know the image that it conveys is that there was light that has now been born among men, and we beheld his light, we beheld his glory, we beheld his grace, we beheld his truth. All of this is a testimony to a very dark land, and here comes the king of light into the land. So when it says that this and again, this, this is all weird because they saw the star in the east, but they traveled, so they weren't seeing the star the whole time. They leave Herod's presence, and they see the star again, and it brings out a rejoicing in them, an exceedingly great joy. What definition they have about the Messiah, I don't know, but my understanding, if it's carrying for, forward from Daniel, that these men have a very clear picture that this child that is born king of the Jews it is, this is the king, and his kingdom is going to remain forever and ever. Amen. And that's why when they see the star, when they see the light, they are rejoicing with an exceedingly great joy. 
They come into the house. This is seen again um, as, as Herod is timing out when they first saw the star. Uh, yeah, we'll have enough time. Um, Jesus is under two years old. Most think he's roughly a year. The, these guys didn't show up on the night of his birth like we see in all our Christmas traditions. But let's say Jesus is roughly a year old. They enter into this home. They see Mary holding Jesus. And when they see this child, they know exactly who he is. And here you have these grown men that bow down before a baby, a year old child. And they present this child with these gifts. Again, the, 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 uh, the generosity that God produces within us is astounding. They're coming with gifts, not just for the gifts of a king, but they're coming with the gifts associated with what this king is to do and promise, which we'll press into in just a minute. They come with gold. Gold is always seen, again, it's a, it's a gift for a king. The idea of frankincense, frankincense is incense. It's associated with the worship and sacrifices and prayers, a gift to a priest. And Jesus is not only a king, but he is a priest. And then also myrrh. Myrrh is another incense that its fragrance comes out when it's crushed. And again, this is seen that this is a gift associated with the sacrifice that he is going to sacrifice himself with and dying for the sins of humanity. So when these men come and they bow down and they worship, here they are, they're pouring out. This is, this is an act of worship of their own souls. This is what we do when we worship vocally with God, whether it's with our money, with our time and our sacrifices, with worship, with just sitting down in devotion with God. All of this, it's a response to who he is it's a response to who he's supposed to be, who he's declared himself to be, the hope that he's given us for the future. All of that is wrapped up in worship. So again, they're divinely warned in the dream, hey, don't go back to Herod because Herod's a dirtbag. So rather than going back north to Jerusalem and going back home, they've got to go swing all the way to uh, the west up the Mediterranean and go home a different way to avoid Herod. So when they departed in verse 13, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay, be, exist, live there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt it was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. It's one of the reasons why, just going all the, back, all the way back to uh, Abraham's life and the Exodus imagery, Hosea is who's being quoted. The cool thing about Isaiah in Hosea chapter 11, where it says, Out of Egypt I have called my son, when you just go read through that naturally, you don't, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with the Messiah. What's fascinating to me is when you have a relationship with the Messiah, when you have a relationship with Jesus, everything that you read in the pages of the Bible takes on that filter. And I would encourage you, make sure as often as you were in God's word, you were asking God, reveal to me, unveil to me you. In you, in the knowledge, in a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that knowledge that brings about not just a head knowledge, but a relationship knowledge, therein is our eternal life. When you read about all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, when you read about all the history that's been preserved for us, it's not so that you can just geek out on history. It's not just so that you can know the religious mistakes of individuals and how they were cleansed and just all those different narratives that were fed through the Old Testament, which are awesome. Every single line Every single letter is to help you get to know your Savior. And Matthew, again, he's appropriate as a disciple of Christ, as an apostle of Christ, as he's sitting in the Old Testament, he's, as he's looking at what Hosea conveys as a prophet and that call for people to turn and repent, as he's sitting in that knowledge that God sent his son to escape a, an evil king and to save his son from destruction, 
sends his son, not just to uh, the, the Egyptians, but there's a major Jewish community there, especially in Alexandria. A third of the community was Jewish. So they're still there amongst their own people, working, living, being, and existing. And as Matthew is sitting in that testimony, not only does he remember in Balaam's prophecy that God brought his children out of Egypt, there he remembers Hosea's prophecy. I remember God said, I will call my son out of Egypt. And again, he's sitting in that prophecy, in that story, looking at the whole narrative of the Old Testament. This is telling me about my Savior and the Father called his son out of Egypt. Now, pretty cool that the Almighty God sends an angel to protect his son from death. Yes? Is that cool? I, I think it's really cool. But if you think that's cool, now we got to sit in the other side of that. What about all of the children that God does not protect? So is God still good? Verse 16, Herod, when he saw that he was deceived, that he was mocked, by the wise men. This is how he felt. They didn't come back to him. They're mocking his kingship, his rulership. He's mocked by the wise men. It says he was exceedingly angry. His exceeding anger is to be contrasted with the wise men's exceeding great joy. And in Herod's exceeding anger, he sends forth and he puts to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Could God have protected the male children of Bethlehem? Of course. He has that power. He has that authority. But in, the, in his process, in his plan, in his purposes, does he step in and deliver every human being from every evil act? He lets a lot of it persist. And in that persistence, he is seeking, he is calling, in his love, in his grace, in his protection. As we as believers follow Jesus as Messiah, we are not guaranteed physical protection from ruthless and vicious oppressors. That does not change the character of God because he has unveiled to us his character. And we're going to sit in that in a minute. In the testimony, you know, you sit in uh, the math, the actuarial tables, you know, people say, and again, it's, it's only maybe 20 male children died. So you sit in how big Bethlehem was at the time and uh, how many male children would have been under the age of two years old and under at this time. Yeah, maybe you're talking about 20 kids. Does that seem heartless? You read some of the commentaries and some of them just throw in these statistics and, and how heartless you can throw out the violent murder of these kids. Not only do you have Herod in his violent anger seeking to preserve his kingship in opposition to the almighty God's kingship, he sends his soldiers forward. So Herod is not the man who took a sword and gutted children. His soldiers did it. What does that tell you about his soldiers? What does that tell you about his community? And you sit in the insanity of this. You can go sit in all the cultural studies of, you know, why did Germany follow after the insanity of Hitler and the execution of the Jews? The human heart is dark. The human heart's rebellion against God leads to all kinds of atrocious behaviors. As we sit in the narrative this morning, God has sent his light into the darkness to save all. Listen to the hope. I want you to turn to Jeremiah 31. Worship team, come on up. I'll be fast in this. I would encourage you all 
to go back and read all of Jeremiah 31. We don't have time. But Jeremiah 31 is where Matthew is quoting this cry. And earlier on in 31, in 31.10, it says, I want you to hear the word of the Lord, O nations, all the Gentiles, all the nations, hear the word of the Lord. Declare it in the isles afar off and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall well up, uh, be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. So much of what I just read there is powerful prophetic imagery in regards to what's being fulfilled in Matthew 2. And then the next sentence, in the middle of all this rejoicing, and that all this hardship is going on, and God's bringing about circumstance to bring, that brings about rejoicing and the satiation of the soul. You can see that in these wise men as they bowed down and worshiped and given gifts to the king of kings. Then verse 15, thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now in this, there's all kinds of reasons for this community to weep and to lament and to be bitter. That again, uh, Matthew is taking this verse and using it to, to highlight just the crying out in the mourning of the culture for what the evil king of the Jews just did to the Jewish children. But in that, listen to this, the rest of this narrative. Thus says the Lord, regardless of what's bringing about mourning and sorrow and the evil that you witness and the evil that has been just puked into your life, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. Listen to this bemoaning. Has this, have you ever moaned like this in your own soul? God, you've chastened me. You've disciplined me, and I was chastened. Like an untrained bull. Restore me, and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. Surely, after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. Why? Because I was ashamed. Yes, even humiliated because the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart, God says, my heart yearns for him. His heart yearns for you. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Jump down to verse 31. All of that is in context. What Matthew is pulling this verse out and using it in Matthew chapter 2. It is the conveyance of the new covenant. Behold, verse 31 of chapter 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Hebrews 8 tells us this is a better covenant. Why? Because the Old Testament, the Old Covenant could not cleanse you from your sins. It could not cover you. It could not redeem you. It demanded him, the Almighty God, to send the Messiah with a new covenant 
and its promises are better than the old. Not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. You said in the, this, is, this is what God does when you have faith and belief in Jesus. He puts his law, his mind into your mind. He writes it on your heart. As you sit in this document, as you sit in a daily relationship with him, his word, his nature, his character is transforming your soul so that what comes out of your soul is what brings glory to him. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. That promise, that hope, that future is all tied into the sacrifice of the Son of God on the cross. And again, his resurrection, declaring the reality of that historical fact. So as we turn to communion, when you sit in the cup, the cup that's to symbolize his blood, it's called the cup of the covenant. It's the cup of the new covenant. As we worship, as you take communion, you're remembering his promises to you. Regardless of the evil that you have done and the darkness in your own soul, regardless of the evil of the culture and the leaders around you, whether governmental or religious, and regardless of that darkness that it promotes, there's dying, there has dawned, there has risen a light in our souls in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And his promises for you are for a future and a hope to wipe away all of your tears, to take away all of your weeping and your mourning and your humiliation, all your shame. He removes all of that and gives to you his glorious, illuminated self. How do you like the gospel? It's powerful. Let's worship.